Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. I am Talbot Davis. I'm the pastor here, whether you're live streaming or whether you're live. I'm always really eager to be able to connect with you and so privileged to be able to give a message on this Sunday or any Sunday. And as you saw on the video, the series is called On the Grid as opposed to Living Off the Grid and the Guide for our series, a series all about embracing what we'd rather avoid, addressing what we'd rather escape. Our guide is Moses. Moses, who some of you may know of and others may not, either way is okay, but he was uh, in the movie, The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, but before that, he was a real person living about 1500, 1700 BC, 3500 or 3700 years ago or so, and uh, his story is primarily captured in the Old Testament book of Exodus. So if you have your Bible with you for this second message in the series, which is called when you're unqualified. The, the first message last week was when you've done too much. Today is when you're unqualified. Uh, locate in your Bible, Exodus chapter four in the first verses of that particular chapter. And maybe you have a Bible that looks like this, or maybe your Bible is loaded on your phone. Either way is fine. And maybe you don't have either one of those. You don't have one that looks like this and it's not on your phone. The good news is uh, we're, we're ready to deal with all of those scenarios. The words will be up on the screen at just the right time. The reason that matters to us, and some of you have heard this stuff a lot, and for others of you, it'll be brand new. But we believe a couple of things about the Bible that you may not have heard of before. And the, one of those things that we believe about the Bible, not a book is a library, and when I say it's a library, it's a collection of a lot of books written by a lot of authors over a long span of time. The book of Exodus, in, in multiple writing styles, the book of Exodus is in the history section, ancient, ancient history section of the Bible. Again, dealing with things that happened well over 3,000 years ago. And that's just kind of a fact that a lot of people don't know, but it really helps us to interpret the Bible more accurately to understand not book is library. The second thing that we believe, we, just, we like to declare it just for the sake of clarity. And you may not believe it yet. We just want you to know what kind of church we are. We believe that, that God breathed his life into the words of scripture. He put his truth onto its pages. We actually believe in leadership here that the Bible is inspired and eternal and true. And because we have that belief, we have kind of an odd custom that we do together. Some of you already beat me to the punch. We lift the Bible up. And if you've never been here before and it looks kind of strange, that's okay. It is kind of strange. We admit it. But we've discovered this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community, that we're a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of the word and ready for its power to be let loose in our lives. Amen? Amen. And before I say another word, let's pray. So God, thank you for the Holy Spirit who's so good and so filled with love and joy and he inspired Exodus's author to write these words and I ask that the same Holy Spirit would inspire me today. Give me a fresh anointing, please. And give me that constant reminder that I really am powerless without you, but because of you, never helpless. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So there is this uh, phenomenon in the world of tennis. 
Yeah, which is some of you know, I mean, they know it here on the front row, which is some of you know, other than the world of preaching is pretty much the only world I've ever lived in. And some of you are like, well, that's a pretty narrow life. You've yes, it is a very narrow life I've lived. But, but this phenomenon in the world of tennis called tanking. And you're like, well, what in the world is tanking in tennis? And it's a good question because I have the answer. Tanking is when you lose on purpose. And I, I used to see it when I was traveling around the country playing in, t- in tournaments for teenagers and I saw it some in college and seen it even a little bit uh, for professional tennis where, where people, it's somewhere either before the match began or in the middle of the match they were playing, they decided I am just going to lose on purpose. I am going to tank. And I've even seen the concept, maybe you've heard of it this way, even seen that concept moved over to, to pro basketball when in the NBA, Teams will, when, when they're doing badly in a season, they will start tanking games at the end of the season so that they will get the first draft pick for the next season. So that if, if you get, end up with the worst record in the NBA, but you might be able to draft the next LeBron James, then it's kind of worth it. So, so that tanking, it, it started in tennis because everything cool starts in tennis. Can I hear an amen for that? And started in tennis and it's in the NBA, but you're, you're fair to wonder, well, why? Talbot, why in the world would people lose an athletic competition on purpose? Why would would people throw in the towel midway through a game or a match instead of just quitting altogether? What is to be gained with all this tanking going on? And as I've thought about that question, because I knew I was going to be delivering this answer, this message, you know, a couple of different answers come to mind. One of them, believe it or not, is some players, that this is, happens in the professional, have been bought off. That there is gambling. People gamble on pro tennis. And I found that out. And I'm like, you're gambling on a pro tennis? Get a life, people. But people gamble on pro tennis and some players have actually been bought off to lose on purpose so that the bookies will make more money. And then maybe more common than that comes, comes that reality when you're just playing badly and it's too frustrating to deal with anymore. But really, as I have thought about, why is it that people tank, especially in tennis? And, and I've, I've been able to look at it through the maybe little realm of experience through the years. Here's what was really going on and here's what is still really going on. A lot of people would rather give up than risk failure. A lot of folks, rather than going through all the effort of giving their very best and still falling short would rather just give up from the outset. It is a lot less risky to act like you don't care and lose on purpose than to acknowledge how much you really do care and still lose anyway. Yeah, a lot of people, they'd rather give up than risk failure. They'd rather live off the grid rather than actually on the grid and all the messiness that that can contain. And I know, Good Shepherd, so, but you're welcome because so many of you are so grateful for that insight into the world of tennis. You're, you're welcome for that. And it'd be a special offering for that on your way out. And, 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 and it's only confirmed for a lot of you that tennis players really are just a bunch of spoiled brats. But you didn't have to say amen to that. But you, 
but you would be good to ask, it would be smart to, to ponder, well, Talbot, that was really very interesting, but what in the world does all this stuff about tanking, losing on purpose, rather give up than risk failure? What does it have to do with Jesus? And what does it have to do with Moses? And what does it have to do with this series anyway? And the answer to that question is everything. Because in this On the Grid series, using ancient Moses as our guide, we're looking at all the ways that people end up hiding from difficult things, that they end up avoiding things that they want, they need to address and escaping things that they need to confront. And, and we saw last week how Moses was born in hiding, how he went into hiding after he'd committed a murder, how he lived in hiding and how God had to do so much in Moses's life to bring him out of hiding. And today in a story I just love, I mean, we're getting ready to look at a story because the Holy Spirit is so good, people. Yeah. And he inspired the author of Exodus to write this story so skillfully and layer so much meaning into it. I, just, I love it, love it, love it. And we're getting ready to look at this story in which Moses hides behind this, almost this skyscraper of excuses that he builds to avoid what it is that God wants him to do. See, as we get to Exodus chapter 4, what has just happened in Exodus chapter 3 is that God has encountered Moses in a bush that burned but never burned up. Some of you know that story and others of you don't, it's okay. And in that encounter, God is calling Moses, hey Moses, my people, my chosen people, the Jews, Israel, they are in slavery in Egypt and I need you to lead them out. And to say that Moses was reluctant is kind of an understatement. And in chapter four, Moses and God are having this conversation. I'm like, they're, they're really talking. Exactly how it came to pass, I don't know. It doesn't work this way with me when I pray, but it was happening with God and Moses. And look how the scene begins. Chapter four, verses one through three, look what happens. Moses answered. This is when God's told him to lead the people out of slavery. What if they don't believe me? Or listen to me. And what if they say, the Lord did not appear to you. And then the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. And staff meaning a large piece of wood that he used to uh, tend to his flock of sheep. A staff, he replied. And the Lord said, throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground. And it became a snake, comma, and he ran from it. <laughs> I just love that last part. And he you think? I mean, I don't know which is scarier that God could turn an inanimate object like a staff into an animate creature like an animal. Or maybe that of, out of all the animals that God had created, he could have chosen any animal to turn that staff into. He chose a snake, kind of like Indiana Jones and, and, and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. And he looks down there and he goes, why snakes? Why snakes? I mean, why couldn't he have turned it into a I don't know, a house cat or chipmunk or an electric eel for crying out loud, anything but snakes. So of course Moses runs from it. But notice at the very beginning, God says, throw your staff on the ground and Moses does it almost without thinking. And that, that same idea continues in verse four. Then the Lord said to him, reach out your hand and take him by the tail. And Moses reached out and took hold of the snake and it turned 
back into a staff in his hand. So again, there's this instant obedient, there's this complete compliance. Moses, reach out and hold that, take that snake by the tail, and he does it. Look, look over at verse six, story continues. Then the Lord said, put your hand, Moses, inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak. Notice how obedient Moses is. And when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Okay, we got a problem now. Mo Moses must've been like, thanks Lord. You have given me the most communicable disease in the history of the human race. And I don't have a mask and I don't have vaccines. All I can do is socially distant from the rest of the world. And, but notice how obedient he is and look what happens next. Now put it back in your cloak. So Moses, without hesitation, without debate, Moses put his hand back into his cloak and, and when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. So God is sovereign and God is completely in control and Moses himself at this stage is utterly obedient, completely compliant. God says it, Moses does it and that settles it. Look at verses eight and nine. And then the Lord said, if they don't believe you or pay attention to the first sign, meaning the staff and the snake, they may believe the second, meaning your hand turning leprous and then turning back. Verse nine, but if they don't believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground and the water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Now, we don't have evidence that this actually happened in this moment, but what we do know is it happened later with the plagues. This is how the plagues happened when God was trying to get through the leaders of Moses, but uh, leaders, leaders of Moses, leaders of Egypt. And, but, but again, notice how utterly, completely compliant that Moses is. God says it and Moses does it without hesitation. And I don't know. Maybe some of you are, are, are like that. When, when, when you think about the things that God does around you, the things that God has said about himself, you're, you're pretty obedient. Like you, you, you believe that God is. You believe that Jesus really died on the cross. You, you believe heaven is real. You believe that hell is not just a swear word, but hell is actually a realm. You, you believe that Jesus is in fact coming back to judge the quick and the dead, whatever that means. You, you believe all these things about God. You don't believe them perfectly, but you do believe them increasingly. And when it comes to what God is, is doing all around you, what God has done throughout history, you're like, yeah, I believe it. Like Moses, like you. Which is why when the story turns at verse 11 or verse 10, it's absolutely brilliant. Look at what happens in, in, in Exodus chapter four, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, pardon your servant, Lord. Pardon me, my Lord. I don't think Moses had a British accent. Moses, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. So, so what Moses is saying is, is, Lord, haven't you heard those surveys where the number one fear that people have in all the world is public speaking? 
Didn't you know that, Lord? And that's me. I know what you are saying about me, but I just don't believe it. And so I'm slow of speech and I'm slow of tongue. And really what Moses is doing is he's, he's giving the oldest excuse in the book. He's, he's unqualified. I am not qualified, Lord. And the Lord's answer back is this mic drop moment. Look what the Lord says in verse 11. And the Lord said to him, well, who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Rhetorical question after rhetorical question after rhetorical question. And every answer is, you're the one who's, who uh, does all of this. And it, it really, it, it reminds me so much, some of you know this story, of a little bit later in scripture, where God is addressing Job. And after chapter, after chapter, after chapter of Job complaining to God, God essentially says, put on your big boy pants, Job, and answer me man to man, where were you? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? That kind of answer, there's really no response that you can give or that you should give. And and God completes this mic drop moment with a command. Look what he says to Moses in verse 12. Now go. I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And with that command, Moses picks up the mic that God has dropped and he thrusts it back into God's face and look at the nerviness of the answer in verse 13. But Moses said, pardon your servant, Lord, please, Please send someone else. Whoa, this is the same Moses who when throw your staff, he throws his staff, pick your staff up, pick the snake up. He picks the snake up, sticks your hand in your cloak. He does it, take it back out. He does it. Everything that God has done around Moses, Moses has been completely compliant, totally obedient. And now everything shifts. When it has to do with what's going on in Moses's life, Moses has the nerve. Moses has the gumption to correct God, could you, could that really, that's a bad idea, God. Could you get someone else? God, God keeps qualifying Moses for this leadership task and Moses keeps disqualifying, unqualifying himself. This back and forth, so fascinating, so brilliantly told. And by this stage, God gets really frustrated with Moses. You, you mean, you, you've done everything that I've said without even thinking, no hesitation at all. And now, now you're talking back to me, son? And look what he does in all of his frustration, verses 14 through 16. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses. <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, what about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he can speak well, He's already on his way to meet you and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. All this, all this frustration and, and, and God's like, hey, Moses, my people, the Jews, 
They're gonna be led to freedom. And I will do it, either do it because of you or in spite of you. And if you decide to start tanking, if, if you feel like you would rather give up before you even begin, rather than risk failure, I will do a workaround, Moses. I will manage around you. Tell me, those of you who manage people, you have people at your work, you manage around them. That's what God has to do with Moses. I will manage around you to get the job done. And at this stage, it's so clear. God's gonna do what he's gonna do, but it's this stage. He has to do it in spite of Moses and not because of Moses. Why? Because Moses tanks. I'd rather give up before I start than risk failing after I begin. And this story is so fascinating. These poles, complete compliance, total resistance, thorough obedience, abject betrayal. How are those same two functions in one person? How is Moses so obedient on the one hand when God's talking about the things that God's gonna do and then so disobedient on the other hand when God says the things that Moses is going to do? And I was really wrestling with this story. You know, like how in the world can I get a message out of this story? And I gotta get a message out of the story because the series has to continue. And then I realized, ah, the contrast between complete compliance and utter resistance. The contrast is the point. And the author is so brilliant. And maybe he's so brilliant because the Holy Spirit inspired him and the Holy Spirit is so good. And what the Holy Spirit wants to, us to get out of the story, actually, when you realize what's going on and that the contrast is the point and that the story is told so brilliantly, it leaps off the page and it leaps into our pores and it has everything to do with your life and my life. And here it is. It's a question I want to ask you today and a question I want you to be asking yourself all week long. Do you believe what God does around you, but you doubt? what he says about you? Or are you good with believing all that stuff? Yeah, God, God created and God used a staff and God used a snake and, and Jesus really died. And I believe all that stuff historically and factually. But then when it comes to what God says about you and what gifting and what purpose God may have given you, you, you like you give that stiff arm just like Moses did. Do you believe what God does around you? But doubt what he says about you. You, you believe, yeah, God so loved the world. Yeah, yeah. God so loved me. Oof. Not after what I did last night. God called him into ministry. Yeah. God's calling me into the mission field. God's given her remarkable gifts. Yeah. God's gifting me to influence people for his kingdom. Not, not really. Do you believe what God does around you and you doubt what God says about you and the reason so many of us fall into that dilemma is just like Moses. 
We like to build up this wall of excuses behind which we can hide. And we, we can hide we can hide from God, we, we, we can hide from others, we can hide from our calling in life. Do, do you have some excuses that have actually prevented you from ever saying yes to Jesus in the first place? And then for others of you, yeah, you said to G- yes to Jesus a long time ago, but since then, you've said no, you've said later, you've stiff-armed, living into the fullness of who he wants you to be. And maybe your excuses have to do with those secrets, and that shame, oh, if you only knew what I've done and where I've been, Talbot, you wouldn't be giving this message, bull. Or maybe your excuses have to do with the family that you were born into and all the trauma that you're raised in and all the chaos you have emerged from. Or maybe your excuses have to do with the skin tone that enfolds your body Or maybe your excuses have to do with simply a sense of complacency. I've I've done enough. I've been enough. Oh, wherever you are, I, I have to believe that God has had you tune in today or God has brought you to this place to blow those excuses out of the water. And to get you to ask yourself that question very seriously, do I believe what God does around me, but I have yet to believe what God says about me? Think about it, people. Just think about what our world would be like if more people had doubted what God had actually said about them, if more people had, 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 had refused to live into the gifts they had. I mean, think what our world would be like if Michelangelo had said, no, I don't do ceilings. <laughs> or Michael Jordan said, no, I don't do dunks. Or Abraham Lincoln said, no, I don't do government. Or Neil Armstrong said, no, I don't do steps. John Grisham said, no, I don't do books. Or Billy Graham, or Tony Evans, or Beth Moore had said, no, I don't do public speaking. Oh man, how much would we miss out on? How much are are we missing out on even from your gifts Good shepherd, do you believe what God does around you, but you doubt what he says about you? And sometimes, sometimes when it breaks through, it's life altering, kind of future trajectory shaping. I remember being about 12 years old and in the car with my dad. I don't know exactly what we were talking about. I do know the exact intersection where we were in Dallas, Texas. And, and I was whining about something and, and something I couldn't do. And my dad said very calmly, but very emphatically in the car, nothing's too good to be true. Nothing. Now it didn't come directly from God, but sometimes the father uses a father to communicate what it is that people need to know. And I was able to begin living into an understanding that what's true out there can actually end up being true in here. Do you, do you believe what God does around you, but you're riddled with doubt regarding what he says 
about you. And all that I think is why I love the closing verse of this section of Exodus. This is after God has been all frustrated with Moses and said, okay, I'll get, I'm going to get Aaron to take your place. And and I'm gonna speak through Aaron. And, but look at what God says in verse 17. I love this. But take your staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. I'm, I'm mad at you. I'm frustrated. My anger is burning against you, Moses. But take your staff. Because there's gonna come a day, Moses, when you're on the shores of the Red Sea And I'm going to tell you what to do with that staff. And I'm going to give you the power to part that sea with that staff. And you're not just going to be compliant and obedient to the things I'm doing around you. You will actually believe what it is that I say about you. And your people will go to freedom. That, that's the day that you know Moses got what it is that God was saying about him. Do you know? Do you know any of the things that he says about you? We put some of those together and I think you'll like it. Take a look up on the screen. Child of mine, you've seen me do incredible things all around you, like marriages being restored, or people being healed from disease. You've even witnessed the joy of new believers as they are baptized. You believed in your heart that I have indeed done all these things. However, you still don't believe all the things I've said about you. If you search through the pages of Scripture, you'll see all the ways that I have spoken truth after truth over your life. Your citizenship is in heaven. You are a royal priesthood. You are a child of God. You are a masterpiece. You are chosen. You are free. You are forgiven. You are my possession. You are treasured. You are made new. You 